Hello, everybody, and welcome to a special milestone here on The Right Take. I am Eric Lendrum with my co-host, Jacob Grandstaff, and this is episode number 50. Thank you guys so much for sticking with us all this time. It has been over a year now, almost a year and one month now since our very first episode, and we've got two very, very big topics, of course, to talk about for today, two of the, the biggest news stories right now, at least for the week, until something else inevitably comes up, but for right now... Foreign affairs and one very big domestic story that we have not covered in the last couple episodes, even though these stories, one of them broke a few weeks ago. We are now coming around to it to finally give you the right take. It involves Russia and Ukraine and a brand new vacancy on the Supreme Court. But before we do that, I just had to tell a little personal story here that, of course, relates to a very relevant topic, something that we have referred to many times here on the right take. And that is January 6th and big tech censorship colliding together to affect none other than your humble co-host here. A little bit of backstory here. Way back on January 6th of this year, the one-year anniversary of that glorious quasi-revolution day we had, um, I posted an update in a Facebook group that I'm in about one particular January 6th prisoner who was in that Facebook group. We were A lot of us were kind of mutual friends with this guy on Facebook who is now in prison. He was arrested in March of 2021, and he is being held in prison. He has been held in prison all this time. And I posted an update noting that he actually was making really, really good progress on his fundraiser. I posted a link to the fundraiser for Mr. Zach Rell, that's R-E-H-L, simply noting that he was over 90% of the way to his fundraising goal, roughly $42,000 out of $45,000. I posted this back on January 6th of this month. Then, on January 26th, 20 days later, I get a notification from Facebook letting me know that my account is blocked for seven days. Now, of course, this has happened before. You know, I have, I have posted some memes that are a little bit too edgy, you know, from time to time, mostly in private groups. And I've been banned for anywhere from seven days to 30 days, temporarily several times. But what was this one for? This seven-day ban was because of that update I posted on the January 6th prisoner, Zach Rell. It simply said, oh, this goes against community guidelines. And of course, the, if there's one thing Facebook loves when it comes to banning people, it's ambiguity. They didn't say which community guideline was violated. They just said, violates community guidelines. They deleted the post, and you can't post, you can't comment, you can't react to anything, you can't send friend requests, you can't do anything for seven days. So, of course, the best thing I can do to counter that is I'm going to further promote this guy's fundraiser, and I'm going to read the full description here. This is from the fundraiser, which is at defendzach.com. That's defendzach.com. Links will be in the description, and I'm just going to read through the summary here. <clears throat> On March 17th, 2021, Zach Rell was arrested by the federal government and is being grossly overcharged with crimes related to the Capitol protests on January 6, 2021. He had been granted pretrial release by a Philadelphia magistrate judge in March, but ordered a stay because the government wanted a Washington, D.C. judge to rule over his release. Yeah, because uh, obviously a D.C. judge is going to be completely unbiased and, and <laughs> impartial. 
At his hearing in June, he was denied bail even though the judge said that he did favor release. Zach is nonviolent, and the prosecution has said as much. He did not assault any police officers. He did not push through any barricades. He did not break into the Capitol, and he did not damage any property. This is all from the court hearing. This is admitted by the prosecution. So he wasn't even in the building. He was one of the protesters who was outside and guilty of being in the vicinity. So that's what makes this even more absurd, that this is definitely one of those more bizarre cases of, I mean, it's not really bizarre. We know what they're doing. But this is one of those more unjust cases where the guy is perfectly innocent, peaceful, He's not one of the ones who walked into the Senate chamber wearing a horn helmet, but they have still arrested him anyway. It goes on to say he has a motion to reopen his release, but it it had not been ruled on as of November 2021. Uh, For context, this website was created. This fundraiser was created in June of 2021. The prosecution has filed a motion to have him transferred to Washington, D.C. from Philadelphia for no reason other than to punish him while he awaits his trial, which holds a tentative date of May 18th, 2022. And again, he was arrested in March of 2021. So they were going to hold him for well over a year. Again, that's that's in a couple months now. But at the time, that was he was looking over a year of being incarcerated. A date that is well over the speedy trial time. This is true. His rights are being greatly infringed upon, and he is being treated as guilty before having even seen his day in court. Even when he does go to trial, the likelihood of having an impartial jury is unlikely. Yeah, well, yeah of course, if he goes to trial in D.C., I mean, if there's one thing that's even more completely unbiased with regards to January 6th than the judges. Since his arrest, Zach has missed the birth of his daughter with his wife, and while he is able to receive visitation from his wife and infant daughter, he has never been able to hold his child. He also has a teenage daughter that he has not seen since his arrest. Zach was the provider for his household, and his absence has been a cause of great stress both emotionally and financially on his family. And of course, he did miss that teenage daughter's most recent birthday as as a result. It ends with... Zach is a father, a husband, and a Marine Corps veteran. All funds go toward paying legal fees and helping his family during this hard time. Again, that is defendzach.com. I will post a link in the description of that below, and I encourage everybody to donate. He is, at this time, uh, a little bit more money has been donated since the last update I posted, $41,880, which is 93.07% of the way to his $45,000 goal, which is very impressive. You know, it's hard to find a lot of January 6th prisoner funds that are that close to their goal. So absolutely go support this guy. Be sure to go support other January 6th prisoners as well. There are so many more that need your support. And there's a great hub website for all of them, or at least the most comprehensive one that you will find. And it's patriotfreedomproject.com. Patriotfreedomproject.com. There's multiple links for you to connect with a January 6th prisoner. Uh, There's merchandise. There's ways that you can support all of them. There's a, a very comprehensive list of all the prisoners who have fundraisers set up for them, including Zach and others, we've got to support these people because obviously big tech does not want anyone to know that a lot of these fundraisers are doing as well as they are. So we should support them at all costs and say, screw Zuckerberg, screw Dorsey or not Dorsey, the, the, the Indian guy who's taken over Twitter, screw all these people. We're going to support these people no matter what. Well, the very idea that you would keep people in jail for a year waiting on trial is just absurd. That goes completely against our constitution. Like the idea that you, it, it, the idea that you get arrested for something, you have a speedy trial, and it's resolved. Not you sit in jail for you know fifteen months, eighteen months. And if the thing is, if these people, a lot of these people, were sentenced for what they did, typically the ones who are who have been sentenced are sentenced for like six weeks. So even if there's ruled time served, they've already served five times. You know, however long they would have been sentenced to jail for. So. And also, it's not just that. It's just it's the abuse that they're facing in these jails 
from yep. people who aren't even Americans. Like these are the foreigners. prison guards. The prison yep. guards are foreigners. And the woman who runs the uh, the prison, she was calling Twitter saying that every prison, every jail should have a MAGA wing. Like these people literally hate the people who stormed the Capitol, even the ones who just walked around outside the Capitol, anyone they could get their hands on. Like yeah, uh, like the article, uh, like the uh, the fundraiser says, they just want to uh, transfer him to D.C. just to punish him, basically just for being Trump supporters. That's yep. uh, they don't need a reason. That's and, all it's um, about. Yeah, it reminds me. I mean, WTOP is w- one hundred three point five FM. It's a local radio station in the Washington D.C. area. It's uh, nothing but weather and news, weather news and traffic, and every single day, over and over again. They have an update about the January 6th prisoners, an update about how many were charged, what new developments are, what new subpoenas are, what what the update is on Donald Trump potentially testifying or going to prison. Right. And, and the, it's almost a updating, sadistic orgy that yes. this radio station goes through. And you can tell – I mean obviously their their listeners like it in the D.C. area, but it is like a sadistic orgy, almost like in uh, – go back to Roman times. You've got an enemy – that has been captured. You take their warriors and you throw them in the arena and the Coliseum and the Romans just go crazy watching the lions tear them to shreds. This is the way many of the, the bureaucratic professional elites around D.C. view Republicans. And this is just an opportunity really to just satisfy their uh, their sadistic, uh, you know, really animalistic type desires to see Republicans humiliated publicly like this. Yep. It's disgusting, and we've got to continue to stand against it, no matter how much they try to censor us. And again, donate to these guys if you can. That's the most important thing. They can't stop. They're, these are websites where they can't stop you from donating. You know, Give, Send, Go, Patriot Freedom Project, and others. They will connect you to fundraisers where you can donate directly to them, and you know, PayPal and Venmo won't be able to stop you. So now, the first of two big moments for this episode you have all been waiting for, the story that has been dominating headlines for almost a month now at this point. And that is the latest massive foreign policy blunder by the Biden administration, or what's gearing up to be that at least. We still, of course, are not fully over the ramifications of the collapse of Afghanistan and how Biden botched that in literally every way he possibly could have. And what we said at the time, you know, while we were, of course, we're against, against interventionism and we don't want any more wars, we also don't want to look weak either. And you better believe that when that happened in Afghanistan in August last year, the whole world took notice, and especially those who have their agendas set elsewhere, namely Russia and China. And the China-Taiwan thing is another topic altogether, but with Russia, it's looking to be you know Ukraine 2.0 here. We all remember, of course, when Russia took the Crimean Peninsula back in 2014 when Obama was president, and now they are looking to potentially, at least according to the news coverage, they could very well be going in to finish the job and take over the entire country of Ukraine. They have had a buildup of well over, I think, 130,000 troops Along their border with Ukraine, there have been uh, evacuations of Americans at the embassy in Ukraine, as well as the evacuation of Russians from the embassy here in the in the United States. And it just seems to be getting worse and worse. Apparently, Biden had a phone call with the Ukrainian pres- president, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, that by all accounts did not go well for Biden. And what is there? What is there to unpack about all this? What is the right take on this situation? Is this about to be Cold War Two? Is this potentially World War Three? Another war in Europe? What's going on here? So, Jacob, let's break down. What does all of this mean? Well, when you asked me earlier what my take is on this, what how I see this, I said, well, I obviously side with Russia in this dispute. I mean, that to me, it's a pretty clear cut case of a country that simply wants to protect its sphere of influence. I mean, it's Russia is an old country. It goes back to the, I mean, really pre-Christianity, back to the early. I mean, it started. Kievan Rus started forming. I believe it, my history is a little shady. It might be sixth or seventh century A.D. And it's been an empire for going back to the 1500s. So it's not. We're not talking about a country like Albania or um, even Italy. I mean, this is a, this is a country that goes back. Uh, has been a large country, an expansive country, going back centuries. So. 
where you are essentially expecting this large country that used to have an empire to simply sit back and say, yes, NATO, you can expand to every single country that borders our country and we won't lift a finger to stop you. We won't protest. You just go ahead and go ahead and swallow up Belarus. Go ahead and swallow up. You've already swallowed up all the Baltic states and most of the Balkan states. Swallow up Ukraine. Go ahead and uh, admit Georgia and all these other countries that border us. Uh, go ahead and take Mongolia while you're at it. Like, oh, sure. Why not? Go ahead and take all these countries that neighbor us. We really it's almost like we expect our that is uh, I don't I say we our elite our unelected bureaucratic elite in Washington, D.C., right. the permanent foreign policy class, they expect Putin and the Russian people to simply sit idly by while NATO swallows up every single state that used to belong to the Soviet Union. That's simply not realistic. And you've got to imagine, uh, OK, so uh, what if the NATO countries uh, – imagine we had lost the Cold War but had not lost our country and the Warsaw Pact started uh, expanding to North America – and South America started swallowing up Central America and start, was threatening to swallow up Mexico. I mean, obviously, we would say, no, you're not coming past Honduras. Like, you're not you're not going to take Mexico. You're not you're not going to we're not going to allow Mexico to join your alliance. And it's not just a matter of them joining Team NATO. I mean, we're also we've got a missile, we've got a missile defense system set up in Romania. So the thing is, once we establish, once we swallow these countries up into NATO and to this alliance that really has no purpose of existing past the Cold War. I mean, what is the purpose of NATO at this point? The Warsaw Pact is destroyed. The Soviet Union is destroyed. NATO does not serve American interests at all. We don't need these NATO allies to protect our country against anyone. And so when these when NATO swallows these countries up, obviously they put missile defense systems in these countries. They're going to move missiles into these countries right up next to Russia. So here's the thing. Like during the 90s, we were on fairly good terms with Russia. Just to give a, a brief history, we were on fairly good terms with Russia. But because NATO continued to expand, that is what precipitated the rise of Putin. That is what precipitated the rise of Russian nationalism and the Russian defensive posture we were seeing toward NATO and toward the United States. Because it's only natural that obviously they don't want NATO to come right up to their doorstep. Now, with the current situation in Ukraine, um, Russia has not invaded Ukrainian space since 2014, which was eight years ago. I mean, that's uh, was that feels like a lifetime ago at this point. Yeah, it's it was a very long time ago when they took Crimea. Crimea is 65 percent Russian, 15 percent Ukrainian. They voted overwhelmingly to join Russia after the overthrow of the government in Kiev. So. That's not going to change. Like uh, Russia has already fortified their border in Crimea with the Ukraine. Crimea is never going back to the Ukraine, regardless of what their president demands. It's it's not going to happen. So that border is pretty much established. Uh, Crimea is going back to Russia. And the, by the way, uh, for those who aren't aware of where the Crimea, why it became part of Ukraine, in 1954, the Soviet Union simply decided out of hand that it was going to give Crimea to the Ukraine. Crimea had always belonged to Russia. It's always been a, a Russian – it was a mixture of Russian, Tartar-speaking peoples. And they basically said, OK, because it's right here on the coast of Ukraine, we're just going to give it to Ukraine. They didn't ask the people if they wanted to join Ukraine. They just simply said – the Soviets said, OK, this is what, well, this is what you're going to do. In 1991, they held a referendum to, be, to still be part of Ukraine but to remain independent. And Ukraine abolished that independence. It was almost like a parliament in, um, in Crimea shortly before Russia annexed the province. So Crimea is a done deal. So anytime you hear people claiming that, well, Russia needs to give back Crimea, it's a done deal simply because the people of Crimea don't want to go back to the Ukraine. So arguments that well, Russia is invading Ukraine, they've already, been, they've already invaded Ukraine, they haven't touched Ukraine since 2014, since the Crimea. Another argument you'll hear when people take the side of Russia on this issue, on the, on the border dispute, is they'll say, 
Well, I'm not siding with Putin. They'll, they'll preface it with, well, Putin is a thug and a killer, but uh, I'm, I'm not taking the side of Putin, but – but let's look at some of the, uh, the they, they say that they support the Russian people, right, rather than they say they support Putin. No, no, no. I'm, t- I'm talking about when people take Putin's side on this issue. They'll say, well, Putin is a thug. I've not uh, taken up for Putin, but here's why I agree with his position. But you know, you often hear if someone's going to accuse a leader of being a thug and a killer. I, I, Eric, do you think it's reasonable that they ought to be able to present at least three reasons why a person is a dictator? If you're going to accuse someone of being a dictator, you ought to be able to present at least three reasons why they're a dictator. Well, I would say certainly just because in this environment we're in, they're, they're, with, especially with the rise of right-wing populist leaders, not even talking about Putin, but in general, you have a, a prime example is Bolsonaro in Brazil, who a lot of people – he is compared to Trump. And a lot of people say, oh, he's a thug. He's a dictator. You know, they say that about uh, all these, you know, right wing populist leaders who have arisen since Trump, you know, Boris Johnson and others. But so you definitely want to ask them to be able to provide examples so that we can differentiate because there are real dictators of the world today, obviously, still to this day. But whether and I guess the debate of whether or not Putin falls in that category is, is what you're getting at here. So I asked courts. I went to courts to find out uh, what exactly Putin is being accused of. So he's accused of murdering his political enemies, of imprisoning dissenters, of occupying foreign territory, and of quashing opposition. Oh, and also abetting some of the world's worst bloodshed. So it lists several people suspected of murders uh, that were murdered on the orders from of uh, Vladimir Putin. But of course, we also have a list of people that people have accused the Clintons of murder. We don't have any evidence <laughs> of that, but it's accusations. Again, like obviously Putin's going to deny this. His supporters are going to deny this. They're going to say it's all made up. But is course, it too late but, to say that I believe that maybe the Clintons do have a higher body count than the than Putin does? Well, again, like it's it's all speculation. You can believe what you want. But th- this is what, according to courts, the list of people suspected uh, murdered on orders from the Russian leader or people close to him is long. It includes several Putin's early critics, um, among them liberal politician Boris Nemtsov, investigative journalist Anna Polikovskaya, and exiled former Russian spy Alexander Li- uh, oh, golly, these names Litvinenko. <laughs> Okay, so let's these, hope we don't go to war with Russia because so, then we'd have to learn how to pronounce all their names correctly. Yeah, uh, yeah. Let's let's please don't do this. Uh, I don't want to hear. I mean, uh, journalists, American journalists, butcher Americans' names enough. <laughs> so these are people like, like journalists and people that Putin allegedly killed. But again, like every country, you've got people. Okay, they report on something, their car blows up, stuff like that. Like that, you have a Seth Rich incident. You know, they happen yeah. to get they happen to get murdered and robbed, but the robber that's forgets a, to grab their wallet. Stuff that, like this happens a, all the time. So, Seth Rich is a blast from the past, by the way. That was like you know conspiracy theories before conspiracy theories devolved into the QAnon stuff, like just the absolutely absurd. So when asked about Putin's record of killings on a TV show, Donald Trump answered, quote, well, I think that our country does plenty of killing, too. I've always felt fine about Putin. He's a strong leader. He's a powerful leader. One of my favorite Donald Trump quotes of all time. (laughs) Okay, so another thing that courts accuses him of is imprisoning dissenters. According to a list from Russian human rights group Memorial, there are now 100 – this is 2016. Now, this is an old article, so I'm sure they've uh, they've added a couple of hundred more people that Putin has allegedly imprisoned. So there were at that point 102 people held in Russian prisons for their political beliefs. Hey, 102 people. There's been more people than that in America held for their political beliefs just in the past year because of January 6th. Well, yeah, yeah. that and other other reasons as well. I mean, we see we see Americans crack the American government crack the American regime, if you will, cracking down on right wing dissenters all the time. Parents who protest at school where meetings are being called terrorists. Oh, yeah, that, like, that, yeah, that reminds I mean, me in Colorado that's Springs. Thing, that's the thing we hate to admit is that I mean, yeah, we, we can criticize Putin all we want and you know discuss whether or not these instances are legitimate or not. But the fact of the matter is that to act like America, the government, and again, I want to differentiate when. It's okay to criticize things America is doing when it comes to the stuff, actions the government is taking, because obviously we don't support our government. We don't support the elite that rules over us anymore, whether it's the elite that 
drone striked a bunch of children in the aftermath of the Kabul bombing, you know, as retaliation that didn't work out so well. Or if it's the same government that, yeah, says, let's have the FBI classify conservative parents who were against mask mandates as domestic terrorists. You know, there's clearly there's absolutely is democratic backsliding going on here in the United States right now, whether we want to admit it or not. Yeah. And you mentioned school board parents. There's this lady in Colorado Springs. She was a very vocal, uh, very vocal at her local school board. The FBI showed up to her home. They busted open her door. She, her kids were upstairs. One of the FBI agents grabbed her daughter and dragged her upstairs by the hair. They ransacked her home, and then she asked for a warrant. They didn't present a warrant. She said, what are you here for? They said, well, you were. Uh, we, we have reason to believe that you were committing um, uh, some type of, uh, I don't know, some type of cyber fraud or whatever. She had no idea what they were talking about. And they left. They never came back. They never presented a warrant, and they never came back. So you have instances of intimidation by the FBI like that in the United States. And I'm sure whatever the model, no, which, uh, the FSB, I think, is the, is the modern uh, incarnation of the KGB, or the Russian KGB, I'm sure they do the same thing to Putin's opponents as well. I mean, yeah, there's no, nobody Nobody is perfect in this regard. Another accusation is that Russia has occupied foreign territory. We've already covered that with the Crimea. Mm-hmm. Another uh, another accusation is the quashing opposition, and this is the the uh, Alexander uh, Navalny. This is the thing with him. The being, journalist who got poisoned, uh, right? Uh, Alexei Navalny. No, he's yeah. he's in jail. He was oh, okay. uh, he, he was accused of some type of fraud or embezzlement. And look, we see that with uh, General Flynn. I mean, there's plenty right. of instances where you've got uh, an opponent, and obviously the instance with Hillary Clinton. She obviously what she did deserved about a year in prison. This the private, was, you're talking about the private email. The private email. Yes. yes. Well, I mean, certainly- if she was sentenced for that, she would have spent a year in prison. And look, if Donald Trump wanted to, he could have had his Department of Justice pursue that. She would have gone to prison, and it would probably be in the same situation as Navalny. Like most people well, who are politically connected in any country, have committed probably at least five to ten crimes well, exactly during their happened, time in office. That's what happened with Paul Manafort too. They went after him for Russian collusion, like the rest of them. And then when it turns out there was no Russian collusion, they got him on what like financial fraud of some kind that he did actually commit. Yeah, but th- it was beside the point. This happens in every country. Uh, you've got politicians and political insiders in every country who commit crimes all the time. They're petty crimes. Many times they're simply tax ev- like minor tax evasion. The problem is they don't get caught until their political opponents manage to get a hold of the justice system. And this is the, I mean, like this is normal. It's just par for the course. Um, another one is obviously abetting some of the world's worst bloodshed, and that's talking about Bashar al-Assad. That's a topic for another day, but <laughs> one, uh, and the, the one that, once again, I'm on the opposite side of the American government. I don't believe that it's the United States' job to go around trying to slay demons and spread democracy. And that was the that was the whole impetus behind the uh, let's with, go remove Bashar al-Assad. Well, especially because after what we saw happen in Iraq and Afghanistan, well, and certainly with Libya as well, Libya was kind of the original uh, – Pretext for that was the original was the original predecessor to the Syria ordeal because of course when they toppled Gaddafi it created this massive refugee crisis and you saw these refugees flooding across the Mediterranean heading straight into Europe and you can imagine Syria being even closer to Europe than than Libya was if Assad were to fall and ISIS were to sweep in and fill that vacuum which was very likely at the time back when towards the end of Obama's presidency you would see an even worse refugee crisis flood into Europe and Europe probably would have never recovered at that point so just for the sake of stability again the Machiavellian model that you know would you rather have you know a leader who is feared or a leader who is loved it's better to have a leader who is feared because then he's going to guarantee stability you know it's better to have someone who is stable even if they're kind of insane and or slightly evil because you know for the sake of regional stability and that was the big flaw with removing saddam hussein yeah saddam hussein was a dictator who absolutely oppressed his own people but you know what he was the one power in the region that was keeping Iran in check for the longest time. Those two neighboring countries balanced each other out. So as soon as you took out Saddam and you have a, a weak, a permanently weakened Iraq, now Iran is free to basically pull a North Korea at the least and flex their muscles a lot more and create more headaches in the region than there were before Saddam was overthrown. 
But yeah, to the broader point, um, I mean, I definitely want to take some time here to disagree with some of the things you have just said, Jacob, because I mean, first, you came right out and said you support Putin. You side with Putin on this one. I'm going to disagree. I, I, I'm going to – this may sound a little bit like kind of the, uh, the the safe take. I really just don't think we should take either side in this. I really – I'm not going to go out of my way to support Putin, nor am I going to go out of my way to support Ukraine. But for no other reason, certainly, I we don't need another war. The last thing we need is another war after we just got out of the longest war in our history. And I think that's that's Putin's biggest strength here is he knows that we, the United States, as a democracy ruled by the people, allegedly, don't want another war. And he knows that for that reason, Biden is not going to send any troops in in the event of an invasion, which is why it really is a lose-lose for Biden. He either – he stands by and does nothing and on the United States' watch, quote-unquote, as we are the world power or the world police, another country gets taken over. But if he goes in, we have another war, and war is just not popular anymore. War has not been popular probably since the presidency of the first Bush. Um I get what you're saying with regards to like Russia wants to protect its sphere of influence. And I get, of course, as we've said many times in this podcast, there's a lot of things that are – lots of metrics are used to judge our world today in politics and in culture through a Cold War lens that is obviously very, very outdated by a number of decades. That we should still not continue treating things as if it's just us versus the Soviet Union. Russia, Russia has its problems. Russia has whatever it's got going on. We should not treat them like they are the one other – nation competing to be the world hegemon at this point because they're not they are a fragment of what they used to be they're not the soviet union anymore russia's economy has shrunk significantly but i i would not go so far as to support putin if for nothing else too don't we generally support borders here on the right take i think that is generally a right take to have we support national sovereignty we don't think countries should have their borders taken over unless they are a rogue state that did it first you know again like iraq invading kuwait then of course you know we go in and we beat them back just enough to say stop no more no more of that stop it so I I think in the event that war happens at this point, that Russia doesn't invade Ukraine, we should just not do anything, which, again, is not the best – it's not ideal because you are still going to see another war and a lot of civilians die. But as far as I'm concerned, it's just not our fight. It's not our battle anymore because like you said, yeah, Ukraine is not in NATO. Therefore, we have no obligation to defend them. If this was a NATO ally, then yes, it would still be – obviously, that would not be ideal either because we don't want another war, but we are contractually obligated to defend our NATO allies. Ukraine's not a NATO ally, so as far as I'm concerned, that's the end of the story right there. Nothing you said is disagreeing with me. I simply said that in the sense that I wouldn't take Putin's side. No, you are taking Putin's side by not insisting that NATO join – like that Ukraine join NATO. That is taking Putin's side. In the sense that I, I would not – I would rather nobody gets invaded here. I would rather there be no more wars. I mean that's just – call me idealistic. I would rather there not be another war. So again, we just got out of another one. You know, I mean there's always going to be skirmishes and like the Congo or stuff like that, but it would be nice to just have an era with no wars, especially because right now there is – I mean if there is any semblance of a Cold War right now – it's the one between us and China. But even then, again, that's a topic for another day. OK, well, let's let's look at what America's position on this is, because I've already kind of laid out what Putin's position is, what Russia's position is. So what is America's what, what is America trying to accomplish in this? So normally the Republican Democratic parties, they don't agree on anything. You can't get 53 senators to vote on anything. Typically, you're you're really lucky if you can get 51 senators to vote on anything, and especially when you've got a completely divided Senate like this. But one thing they are um, completely united on is the foreign policy establishment's view of America's role in the world. And for instance, on CNN State of the Union, 
the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Bob, uh, Bob Menendez of New Jersey. He made a joint appearance with the panel's top Republican, Senator Jim Risch of Idaho, and Menendez said that there was, quote, an incredibly strong bipartisan resolve to have severe consequences for Russia if it invades Ukraine, and in some cases for what it has already done, uh, obviously referring to helping the separatists, taking over Crimea, I guess uh, amassing troops within Russia's border on its own territory. And he said that legislation was currently under discussion and was expected to include, quote, massive sanctions against the most significant Russian banks, crippling their economy, their economy, meaningful in terms of consequences to the average Russian and their accounts and pensions. Let me repeat that. So Menendez said that there's currently a bill under discussion for sanctions against the most significant Russian banks, crippling to their economy, meaningful in terms of consequences to the average Russian and their accounts and pensions. In other words, Menendez isn't saying we've already got some some more sanctions in the works and we're going to hit their oligarchs. We're going to hit Putin's bank account. We're going to hit the, the country's ability to wage cyber warfare. No, 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 no. What he's talking about is attacking the poor Russian peasant who has absolutely nothing and taking his pension away from him. That's the kind of attack that he's talking about sanction-wise. Um, what's more is Senator Risch, uh, he chimed, he's of course right there with him. He chimed in and he criticized Tucker Carlson's, um, of course, uh, Tucker Carlson, as most people know who follow news, he has pretty much taken Russia's side on this issue. He does not believe that the United States should get involved in this issue, should not try to push Putin or, you know, try to pull Ukraine over into NATO and provoke an attack by Russia. So this is from the Daily Beast. It says Senator Risch, quote, while criticizing Fox News star Tucker Carlson, for questioning why the United States should support Ukraine amid increasing tensions with Russia, Senator James Risch said on Sunday that, quote, we always side with countries that are democracies. Now, think about that for a second. So if there's a conflict anywhere in the world, one country is, I guess, meets our definition of a democracy. I mean, what exactly is a democracy? Like, is, the, a United, question. is the United States a democracy? Like after the election of, uh, well, I won't even say it, but after certain elections, is the United States a democracy? That's kind of an open question. And what exactly, like, is Russia a democracy? I mean, they have elections. Putin wins every time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what about Ukraine? I mean, Ukraine elected someone. And then with the help of Soros's organizations in the Ukraine and our State Department, we overthrew that duly elected president and installed somebody that our side believes should be president. Now, obviously, both sides claim there was electoral fraud. Both sides claim the other is illegitimate. But can you really say that the Ukraine is a legitimate democracy? I mean, what is a legitimate democracy and what isn't legitimate democracy? See, let's take Germany, for instance. The um, the alternative uh, – the Alternative für Deutschland, the alternative for Germany, that's their far right-wing party – they won a state election a couple of years ago. Merkel left her uh, her diplomatic tour in South Africa, went straight back to Germany, and they invalidated the elections. They basically told the people, no, you can't elect them. So, you know, democracy varies. Sounds kind of familiar, especially for Germans. Yeah, so basically democracy is whatever the Western elite want democracy to mean, and it means that you can, you're only allowed to – basically they want a system where they give you a slate of candidates, and then they say these are the candidates that the peasants are allowed to vote for. And if the peasants decide they don't like these candidates, well, that's tough luck. If you elect someone else, we'll simply have that person overthrown. We'll get our paid actors in the streets to overthrow them. We'll put it – we'll install whoever we want. So Senator Risch is basically telling the people – he's uh, advocating for Wilsonian foreign policy, that, and this guy's a Republican. Let's take the Heritage Foundation's take. They believe that we should uh, – that Biden made a mistake by unilaterally capitulating on Nord Stream 2. That's the natural gas pipeline. They believe that um, he made a mistake by sending a steady stream of envoys to Moscow to discuss this issue. I guess we're not supposed to send diplomats out anymore. We're just 
I mean, we're not supposed to talk to the Russians. And the Heritage Foundation writes, quote, these high-level discussions are a mistake. Putin's list of demands for discussion are so outlandish they cannot possibly be met. Now, is that true? Let's look at what what exactly are Putin's demands. I'll, I'll tell you what Putin's demands are, Eric, and you tell me if the average Republican voter would consider this to be reasonable. So here's all here's what Putin is demanding. Here's his written list of demands. He wants two things. Number one, he wants assurances that Ukraine will never be a, a member of NATO. His second demand is that the um, that the United States and NATO withdraw all of its nuclear weapons from former Soviet republicans and uh, republics and nations that once belonged to the Warsaw Pact. So, so e- Eastern Europe, basically. Eastern Europe. Basically, he wants uh, assurances that, that Ukraine will not join NATO, and he wants all of NATO's weapons withdrawn out of Eastern Europe, away from his borders. Do you think that the average Republican voter, if you went to the average Republican voter and said, do you think these demands are reasonable? Do you think the average Republican voter would agree that those are those two demands are reasonable? From the context that most uh, Republican voters, again, want to, they certainly now, thanks to Trump, most Republican voters are in the anti-war category and don't want another war and would take a look at that and think, oh, if that's what it takes to avoid a war, because on top of avoiding war, it's also de- uh, I'm not sure what the term is, a de-arming, you know, denuclearization of Eastern Europe, they probably would support it. And again, as we said, from the context of, you know, moving on from the Cold War lens of the world, then yeah, absolutely that I could see why some people would think that makes sense. Yes. Well, see, that this this is the problem. Like nobody ever asked the average voter what they think about this. They're basically told what to think. And this goes back to what we talked about with the Truman Doctrine. And, and during the Truman Doctrine, it pretty much bamboozled the American people into believing that it was in our national interest to spread democracy and to make sure that the world was safe for democracy. It basically took Wilson's foreign policy and translated it into a post-World War II world. So in the in the instance of Ukraine, let's let's kind of dive in and figure out what exactly the United States seems to want. So Vox is um, – that is basically the West Coast surfer dude's neoliberal rag that he goes to if he wants to find out what the neoliberal establishment wants him to believe and what's, uh, what it wants him to think. So according to Vox, Ukraine – it's talking about how, how Putin is claiming that Ukraine – the Ukrainians and Russians are one people and they ought to be united and joined together and stuff like that. They write, quote, Ukraine has long been distinct from Russia, experts told Vox, and Putin's current mythologizing of the Russian-Ukraine relationship fits a pattern of falsehoods des- uh, designed to reconstitute imperial glory and more importantly to shield Putin from the threat of democracy in former Soviet republics and possibly in Russia itself. So according to Vox – Putin is simply trying to avoid – he's trying to shield himself and Russia from the threat of democracy and not only the threat of democracy to Russia but the threat of democracy to its former satellites. Now, knowing the political leanings of Vox, do you think that when Vox uses the word democracy, it's using it in the same sense that an American conservative would understand it? Oh, of course not. So let's notice the unique wording here, the threat of democracy in former Soviet republics and possibly in Russia itself. Democracy isn't really a threat. I mean, you could argue that democracy would be a threat to Putin because if you have actual democratic elections, he might lose the election. But how is democracy a threat to neighbors? I mean, it's not really a threat to Putin if a neighboring country has democratic elections. But let's check out these Vox headlines on democracy in the U.S. to see if their definition of democracy is actually what we think of when we think of democracy. So here's uh, some headlines. The voting rights push in Congress is over. The fight for democracy isn't. I thought we already had a democracy in America. Protecting voting rights isn't enough to save democracy. American democracy is tottering. It's not clear Americans care. Democracy is losing. Build Back Better is the latest victim of America's anti-democratic Senate. Eleven ways to fix America's fundamentally broken democracy. 
The 2018 election is a referendum on American democracy. So it's very obvious that Vox does not see the United the the kind of government we have in the United States as being an actual democracy. That that's the phrase they love to throw about again, especially after January 6th. Our democracy, our democracy, our democracy. They almost universally the leftists, the me, the mainstream media, and the Democrats keep using that phrase, and they're saying our democracy, clearly referring to their side of the aisle, not our as a collective nation. And again, it's you got to ask yourself what kind of whose democracy is it they're really talking about there. But going back to what they said about Putin's current mythologizing, because obviously Putin doesn't want war, Ukraine doesn't want war. They don't. They they really don't want. Putin basically wants NATO to back off. Ukraine would like to be part of NATO because they're scared of Putin. That's understandable. But according to Vox, Putin's current mythologizing about the so-called brotherhood of Ukrainians and Russians is to try to shield himself and the former Soviet republics from democracy. Now, we need to kind of figure out what Vox means by democracy because they obviously don't mean democracy like we think of democracy. And if they're wanting to impose that kind of democracy, whatever they mean on Russia, then if I were Putin, I wouldn't want that imposed on me either. I wouldn't want that imposed on any neighboring countries. Okay, so let's look at let's look at the neoliberal history of democracy spreading. First of all, you had Soros in Eastern Europe, who basically went in and set up foundations, flooded it with hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, these, these foundations had so much money, they were more powerful than the governments themselves. And then you had all the color revolutions where you had uh, foreign-funded, Soros-funded revolutionaries getting in the streets and overthrowing democratically elected governments and installing, installing new regimes. So obviously, if I'm Putin, I'm definitely going to try to avoid that situation. So what would happen? What exactly does the United States want? Let's say if the Biden regime got everything it wanted, what would that look like? If Vox, if the if the writers at Vox got everything they wanted regarding Ukraine and Russia, what would that look like? Obviously, let's take the the basics. Ukraine would join NATO. The United States and NATO would put anti missile defense systems in Ukraine. They would load Ukraine down with weapons. They would load Ukraine down with NATO troops and American bases right up on the border with Russia. And then they would start doing to Russia what they've been doing to all these other countries. Think about where did the color revolutions take place? The color revolutions took place in Kyrgyzstan. In Georgia, they took place in, in Kazakhstan, in these countries that all border, took place in the Ukraine. They took place in all these countries that border Russia. Well, if you can get all those countries to join NATO, now you've got Russia surrounded. Where's the next color revolution going to be aimed at? It's obviously going to be aimed at Moscow. You're going to have they're going to start supporting color revolutions in Moscow. They're going to start trying to strangle Russia's economy. Then you're going to have separatist movements and you're going to have. Article after article appearing in the Western press talking about all the persecuted minorities in Russia who simply want to be free from Russian domination. You're going to start having separatist movements to try to break Russia apart so American capitalists can move in and swallow up whatever is left. This, so basically some elements of kind of what's happening to America right now. Yes, they basically want to take what they want to take what big tech and what American corporations have done to American democracy and they want to do that to the Russian government and the Russian people. So if you're looking at this from a from a Russian's perspective, forget about whether or not you like Putin or not. If you're a Russian, and you're looking at what's happened in the United States, so you've got basically got a choice. Okay, I can put up with a Russian strongman who's a bit of an asshole, or I can put up with Jeff Bezos. I can put up with um, who is not elected. Who, who's power? Jeff Bezos is more powerful than Vladimir Putin. Yes, obviously. exactly. I can put up with Bezos. I can put up with uh, you know any number. I can put up with Zuckerberg coming in and being a you know like a semi you know like a quasi dictator in my country because that's what would happen if all these countries join NATO and then you spark color revolutions in Russia. You get Russia to be split apart. What's going to happen is you're going to have multinational corporations move in 
and basically um, move in like vultures and eat up what's left. So, And they will be – and the most important thing, they will be unaccountable to the people because you don't vote for corporations. You don't vote for CEOs of the big tech companies, and they know that. Yes, exactly. So looking at this from an American's perspective, how should an American react to the situation in Ukraine and Russia? Well, first of all, let's, and this is a problem with the Republican Party. It doesn't really have a foreign policy. Their basic, their their whole shtick is basically Biden is weak. Biden is showing weakness. Biden, you know, Biden, Biden is being a weak president and show weakness on the world stage. But when you think about what should their foreign policy be, if you want to have an America first foreign policy, it needs to be the kind of foreign policy that Trump had toward Russia and the Ukraine. He told, he basically told Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, look, you and Putin, maybe y'all can sit down and, and figure this stuff out and uh, discuss things. That's kind of what what you want. You want to facilitate dialogue between Zelensky and Putin. You want to get Putin and Zelensky in the same room and say, okay, look, y'all sit down, figure this out. Ideal situation. Crimea remains part of Russia. Ukraine recognizes that, and Russia promises not to meddle anymore in Ukraine, and we won't swallow up Ukraine and NATO. Ukraine recognizes they're not going to be part of NATO, and you just live happily ever after and just accept it. That's the way it's going to be. That's what would happen if the American government represented the American people and had an America first foreign policy. But of course, the American government doesn't represent the American people. The American people have no say in their foreign policy. They basically find out what the foreign policy is whenever they see, read the headlines that we've started a new war. Yep, and then they just go along with it because the media is only going to report you know one particular side of it. And yep. there's no political opposition. Like the Republican Party is going along with this 100. percent I even read a town hall article the other day, and below this was on Russia and Ukraine, and below the article it's, it said editor's note: town hall stands strongly with the people of Ukraine, and we need to send a message against Putin's uh, interference in Ukrainian politics. Send a message to Biden that he needs to be tough on Putin. I'm thinking. You know, what's the difference? Basically, you've got two parties who have merged into one foreign policy establishment. There's no pushback at all from the Republican Party in any of this. And that was one of the main reasons why they pushed back so hard on Trump on that more than most other issues. You know, keep in mind the idea of like, you know, facilitating dialogue between two world leaders to avoid a conflict. That's crazy. You know, never forget that when Trump first ran and in like 2015 or like early 2016, he was asked about Putin out on the campaign trail and he said something like, you know, you know, why would we have to – why do we have to have a conflict with Putin? I would like to get along with Putin. I'd like to be able to talk to him. That was the moment when the media collectively went, oh, talk to Putin? This guy must be a Russian plant or something. Mm-hmm. And that was the birth of the whole Russian collusion narrative out of that single moment because Trump had the wild idea of, hey, how about we not go to war for the first time since Jimmy Carter? Which, again, Trump did that, by the way. Trump was the first president since Jimmy Carter to not get us into a new war. And the same reaction they had toward Trump is the same reaction that the Heritage Foundation is having toward Biden. One of their complaints is that Biden sent emissaries to Moscow to negotiate. They don't believe that Biden should negotiate. Their idea of peace through strength is basically telling Putin, I guess, I guess this is kind of what's implied, don't invade Ukraine or we're going to attack you. Like we're not going to negotiate. This is not negotiable. Um, so, yeah, so that's that's where we are. Both parties have the same ideology when it um, comes to foreign policy. They believe that the United States should be – in the Wilsonian mold, it should be the world's policeman. It should go around and protect democracies and fight for democracy, not fight for Americans, but fight for the concept, the nebulous concept of democracy. And it, it's really disgusting. And it's something that if if the thing is, if the America first movement is ever going to take over the Republican Party, they're going to have to tackle the foreign policy aspect because you yes. cannot have domestic policies that mirror the will of the people when you have a huge behemoth of foreign policy establishment that – suffers losses like we suffered in Afghanistan and just keeps rolling like nothing happened. Like, oh, yeah, let's send another, you know, 8,000 troops to uh, to Ukraine after we just got out of 
uh, a 20-year war. Yeah, no problem. Right back to business as usual. Because, of course, we have the former Raytheon executive as our new secretary of defense. Uh, refers. I wanted to refer to one last point as well. You mentioned a while ago that, you know, the people of Russia can choose at this point. They feel like they have to choose between a strong man like Putin or, you know, faceless corporations or extremely obscenely powerful and obscenely wealthy trillionaires like, you know, Jeff Bezos. It reminds me of something that's been talked about a while ago, some articles that were written saying that even European countries that there's a broader international resistance now to the dominant export of the United States since Biden came to power. And that export is wokeism. And they say, and again, they're using it in the loose term that, you know, we have debunked here on the right take that it just encompasses all of leftism. But you've heard about this from European countries, including France, even, you know, Emmanuel Macron getting up in Biden's face and yelling at him at that one uh, summit meeting a while back because he was sick and tired of, you know, critical race theory and white privilege and this nonsense that was slowly starting to creep into French culture because, hey, it's happening here in America. It's going to happen elsewhere. So in that sense, you could argue, you know, the Russian people who don't want you know, cultural Marxism in their country. It's its a phenomenon that you are seeing elsewhere, even in so-called friendly nations like in Europe. And as if we needed one more reminder of what that wokeism and real wokeism, by the way, the original definition of wokeism, as we talked about in the last episode, you need a real reminder of what that is. That is what leads us directly to the next big topic on this episode. The one other big story that is at, at this point has kind of swept Russia and Ukraine out of the spotlight for at least a, a little while longer. And you better believe that when Biden got this news, he was like, oh, thank God, a distraction, a distraction from everything, from Russia, Ukraine, from the failure of, you know, the voting rights bill that he shelved his entire agenda for, Build Back Better and otherwise. And that is, of course, a Supreme Court retirement. You, you got to know, this is my mindset, by the way, Jacob, that when uh, when I first saw this news break, I saw it on the TV the other day. For a moment, my eyes lit up. I'm like, here we go. And then I remembered that Trump's not president anymore. So I was thinking we we're about to have a 7-2 court. No, no, no. So Justice Stephen Breyer, who was nominated by Bill Clinton to the Supreme Court, he is 83 years old. He is the oldest justice on the court in age and the second longest serving justice on the court now, only behind Clarence Thomas. He announced his retirement, or apparently the news of his retirement got uh, leaked, and apparently the justice was not happy about that. He wanted to announce it on his own terms. But he's stepping down. So because, of course, there was a lot there were a lot of articles going around on left wing publications of of the internal pressure from Democratic leaders to convince him to step down now while Democrats have control, quote unquote, again, a 50 50 tie with Kamala as a tiebreaker control of the Senate. So they with Biden can confirm a new nominee to replace him for the next 30 to 40 years. So we are now looking at because, again, the moment I saw this and I already knew before I even remembered, I knew where this was going. Because this leads us back to 2020, of course, when Biden was on the campaign trail. And a little flashback here, the internal politics. Biden was way behind in 2020, of course, at the start of the primaries. In the Iowa caucuses, Pete Buttigieg ultimately emerged the winner, quote unquote, with the most delegates, even though Bernie won the popular vote. In that same caucus, Joe Biden came in fourth place. In New Hampshire, of course, he did even worse and came in fifth place while Bernie ran away with a, a slight uh, – got a, ultimately a narrower victory but a clear popular vote victory over Buttigieg. And then in the Nevada caucus, Bernie ran away with that contest and Biden came in second, a very distant second. Bernie got 34 percent to Biden's 17.6 percent of the vote. So at that point, Biden was an afterthought. It was pretty much Bernie's nomination to lose and Biden needed a Hail Mary at this point. And one individual in particular in the state of South Carolina, a certain member of House Democratic leadership, Jacob, do you remember, remember Clyburn. this person? Jim Clyburn. Clyburn, the House Majority 
whip. And pretty much the the most prominent, I think, African-American member of either House of Congress at this point, you know, House and Senate alike, he is a power player in Democratic politics. Biden, apparently behind the scenes, was pleading for this guy's endorsement to give him a fighting chance in South Carolina with its large black population to have any chance of stopping Bernie. And apparently behind the scenes, prior to this rally, this campaign rally where Clyburn appeared on stage with Biden and announced his endorsement, which a lot of people saw as the turning of the tide that allowed Biden to win the nomination, or <clears throat> win <clears throat> the nomination from Bernie, Clyburn made Biden swear to him behind closed doors that he would go onto that campaign stage and pledge as president to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court, the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court, who would be the third black justice overall after Thurgood Marshall and, of course, incumbent Justice Clarence Thomas. Biden, of course, made that pledge, and now here we are at the moment where he has to follow through on that. Breyer is retiring, and there's already a delightful shortlist of potential candidates for first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. So, Jacob, what's the latest on this story? Well, just to go through the some of the, the top potential candidates, we got Katanji Brown Jackson. She's currently on the D.C. Court of Appeals. She went to Harvard for undergrad and Harvard Law, and of course, she's uh, purposely uh, tried to, um, to up her resume by coming down harsh on all those insurrections January 6th, that, were, that's uh, right. that tried yep. to uh, to hang Mike Pence. I guess she cares so deeply for Mike Pence. She learned a thing or two from Emmett Sullivan, I guess. Yes, yeah, yeah. Emmett Sullivan. Oh, yeah, Emmett Sullivan is. Uh, yeah, Emmett Sullivan. He, that's he's the guy that was over the yeah. Flynn trial. He he's, was just. Uh, he, he's, yeah, he's the worst. It, 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 that, judicial tyranny is that's that the thing is. about whenever you get these partisans in uh, not just partisans but specifically black partisans who have an axe to grind not just with republicans but with white republicans because they genuinely believe that white republicans are white supremacists when you go before these judges you can't expect justice because they've got their axe to grind against your what they perceive to be your belief system so this is this is the case with katanji brown jackson so uh i don't think we need to guess how she would rule on affirmative action uh, another one is Ca- California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger, who went to Harvard, then Yale Law. Circuit, Circuit Judge Candace Jackson Akiwumi. Akiwumi, she went to Princeton, then Yale. Circuit Judge Eunice Lee, who went to Ohio State, then Yale. District Judge Will Wilhelmina Mimi Wright, who went to Yale, then Harvard Law. So all of these women are obviously very qualified. None of these – you can't really look at any of their resumes and say, OK, well, if they get on the on the bench – they weren't qualified. It's just because of their skin colors. And this is one of the th- problems with my reaction. Well, this is one of my problems with the reaction that's, that's come from the right, the it's Republican both, Party in particular. It's both yes and no. Like, yes, on paper, they have the resumes from all the Ivy League schools. But at the same time, yeah, this is totally going to be an affirmative action pick. That's the point. So, yeah, but whatever you're faced with, like a Supreme Court situation, you've got – obviously, you've got dozens of people who are qualified. And that's like, like the short list that Donald Trump released from the Federalist Society. Every single person on that list was qualified to potentially sit yeah. on the court. So in a situation like that, let's say if you want to pick a woman. So he wanted to pick a woman uh, when Amy – he picked Amy Cooney Barrett. So he's obviously going to look at the list of women, and he's going to pick the top, li- the top one from the top candidate from that list of women. It's like let's say, for instance, you're apartment hunting. And you've got three neighborhoods, you're, and you want to live in one particular neighborhood. You're just going to pick all the apartments in the neighborhood. You can pick the top one in that neighborhood. It's the same way with uh, picking a black woman. So it's not that the person isn't qualified. It's just that you're discriminating against people who don't fit the particular group that you want to set on the court. So 
Here's a, a very good article that MSNBC put out on uh, the Republican Party's hypocrisy a, and lack of honesty. You won't hear a good me s- article from MSNBC. Yeah, Who you, knew? You won't hear me say that too many times, but this one is particularly I, poignant in I, that <laughs> I completely agree with its uh, its opinion. It is an opinion piece, but I complete. It's by Jarvis DeBerry. I think that is legitimately. I, I, I'm actually been keeping track here, Jacob. That is the first time in almost exactly one year. That MSNBC has had a good opinion. The last one was uh, way back when we did our episode paying tribute to the late Rush Limbaugh shortly after he died when uh, MSNBC's Chris Hayes had that genuinely thoughtful tribute to Rush on Twitter saying that he was one of the architects of modern American conservatism. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, the first good take MSNBC has had in one year. Congratulations, Peacock Network. So DeBerry writes, President Joe Biden's promise to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court seat being vacated by Justice Stephen Breyer is being pilloried by the right. But it's a refreshing departure from presidents who've made race conscience nominations while asking the public to accept the lie that race never entered their minds. And this is one of the things that Republican, you know, all the fetching you hear from Republicans about the fact that Biden is discriminating against non-blacks by not only picking a black woman. Well, this isn't the first time this has happened throughout American history, at least going back to the early 20th century. There has always been a conscious desire for a president's to balance the court with the makeup of the country. So when you had a half-Protestant, half-Catholic nation, there was a conscious effort to try to make sure that there was a balance between Protestants and Catholics. As the Jewish population grew in America, there was a conscious effort to make sure that you had at least one Jewish person on the court, preferably two Jewish people on the court. And as time went on, you could, they continued to after the civil rights movement. They wanted to put they put Thurgood Marshall in the court because yep. uh, Linda B. Johnson put Thurgood Marshall in the court because well, obviously because black people now had complete access to the ballots, they should have one of their people on the court. And it's the same with women. Like uh, Ronald Reagan wanted to be the pr- first president to appoint a woman to the court. Sandra Day O'Connor. And the point that DeBerry is making here is that you had past presidents who obviously were being specific in the fact that they were going to put a particular race or particular gender on the court, but they just pretended like they weren't. Biden is just coming out and being honest about it. He promised as whenever he was campaigning, he was going to put a black woman on the court. OK, Breyer decides he's going to retire. He promises to fulfill his promise of putting a black woman on the court. DeBerry writes, Biden's decision to openly talk about the race of his forthcoming nominees suggests that we may be past the quote-unquote colorblind nonsense that was all the rage a generation ago. You remember, don't you, the quote-unquote, I don't see colored people who with that falsehood implied that blackness was something dirty and unmentionable or something the person thus afflicted had to overcome? When President George H.W. Bush announced in July 1991 that he'd picked Clarence Thomas to fill the Supreme Court seat left vacant by Thurgood Marshall, he suggested it was pure happenstance that he, a virulent opponent of quotas, was replacing the court's first and only black justice with another black man who would also be the only black person on the court. When he mentions that you had the colorblind generation, that was like Gen X, some boomers, but mostly Gen X, that claimed that they didn't see color, we were all one nation but when you think about it, the, that he's actually right. When if you're good, if you are colorblind, you are essentially saying that you want to erase black people off the face of the earth or off the face of the nation. Because if you're colorblind, what color do you see? Like, do you just see black people as white people with dark skin? Are they no different than white people? They just basically have a different skin pigmentation. And the point that DeBerry is making is that if you do have a colorblind society, you have to erase black people from the body politic. You have to completely erase black people from American history, from American culture, from American society. Because if we're all one people, then black people obviously don't exist. Like forget about – he basically says, you know, this is the mindset that says, oh, forget slavery. Slavery didn't happen. None of this happened. Well, not just slavery. I mean you think about it. If if we're all going to be colorblind, that means that black music doesn't exist. You just have American music. If we're going to be colorblind, that means that the black dialect and the black accent doesn't exist. We just all speak with an American accent. Some just have different American accents from others. 
if you want to be colorblind, that means that Black History doesn't exist. We black History have, Month, yeah, which well, we're about to enter right now. Yeah, by the way, but I mean, that, you think about it, that means everyone's just one. We all have the common American history, and Black people don't have anything separate that is their own. And this is something that colorblind white people can't seem to comprehend. And most colorblind, most of these so-called colorblind white people, they tend to come from areas with not many Black people, and they're good people and they mean well. But they're not thinking through the ramifications of what they're thinking about, of what they intend to do. So if you want a colorblind society, you essentially are saying that you want to erase the memory of black people from the country. And that's obviously something that black people don't want. And this is why there's such a huge gap between all the woke nonsense and the Republican Party, because the Republican Party sees this and they're like, well, what are you doing? This is completely against what Martin Luther King Jr. wanted. But they are looking at Martin Luther King Jr. through their – lily white eyes trying to interpret what martin luther king jr was saying to make them feel good and look i saw that i mean i the I, reality I, is we are not like englishmen so you take a black englishman and a white englishman they are the same ethnicity the only difference between them is their skin color they don't they speak with the same accent they have the same history they have the same heroes there's literally no difference they have the same culture they eat the same foods there's no difference from them between them other than their skin color that is not the case in America. Black people in America have their own separate culture. They have their own separate music. They have their own separate dialect, and they have their own separate interpretation and take on history. And if you're going to try to create a colorblind society, you are demanding that you deny them all of that. And this is what the Republican Party continues to try to do, and this is why I mean, there's I such kinda, a big disconnect between them and black people. Well, no, because I kind of see – I'll push back on that a little bit just because we saw this in – certainly I think in the 70s and 80s was it, it was referred to, and even a little bit of the 90s, was known as the era of good feelings, you know, the immediate post-civil rights era where everybody did kind of get along. You know, No one really did care so much about race as much, but I'm, it certainly has seen a, a new resurgence of this, this kind of neo-segregationism among younger people. I saw this in college. When I went to college, I'll always tell this story overwhelmingly the students I saw, they're not just the black students, but students in general, whenever asked about MLK, they always said, oh, oh, he was weak. You know, he he was he was a loser. You know, obviously I'm using more polite language there. They all think he was basically trying to appease the white man. They prefer Malcolm X, who supported segregation, by the way. You know, they and that's why you see this push for in colleges, race based segregated housing again. You know, they're trying to basically kind of revert back to square one. So it's but it's how- a new it's different concerns, concerns, quote unquote, a different political outlook of a new generation that obviously is much further removed from what happened decades ago. But how much of that outlook of that that woke backlash is a backlash against the colorblind push by Generation X? Because again, if you're going to be a colorblind society, that means you have to erase black people from the from the American well uh, the American picture. And so you have young black people they're like, "Well, wait a minute. I don't want to just be an American. I have my own separate ethnicity and culture. And if you want me to just be like you, what you just want me to be white with dark skin? I don't want to do that. Like I'm I'm different from you. I have my own separate culture and history and dialect and what have you. And so this is the this is the issue that Republicans are facing when they see Biden who is a realist on race. Like Biden is a complete realist on race. He 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 does see color. Like he do, he has never pretended to be colorblind. And his he, policies have certainly shown that he is focused on this race-based stuff. Again, he your reparations for non-white farmers. Exactly. He, he gave yes. a, a new African American holiday, Juneteenth, which I always say National Independence Day. Are you kidding me? Like things like that. And again, this push to federalize our elections, which is really just a push by the BLM lobby to basically give the you know a small radical minority power over the entire country. Now, obviously, there's a minority of black people who would like to assimilate into the the broader white culture, and they look at what Biden is doing and they're appalled by it, and they they you know they they see this as just taking them backwards. 
But the reality is the voting patterns bear it out that the overwhelming majority of black people agree with this. And the one thing that I can't stand about Republicans is Republicans take the same view toward blacks that elite white liberals take toward rural whites. Elite white liberals believe that they know best for rural whites and that rural whites are voting against their own best interests. This is what you hear among white liberals all the time, that rural white people keep voting against their own best interests. This is what you hear from Republican elites all the time, that black people continue to vote against their their own interests. So – and this is what you see, that they believe that the Democratic Party – this is the mythology, that the Democratic Party is so racist they have convinced – the majority of an ethnicity to vote against its own interests. So what is the majority of that ethnicity so dumb, so illiterate, so incapable of independent thought that they're led astray by racist white Democrats? It, it's definitely it, worth looking at it, because you look at, for example, in 2020, I mean, there definitely there was a greater push you know, for the African-American vote to vote for Republicans. You know, you saw with Candace Owens, and the Brexit movement and, and Trump and a variety, you know, the lowest unemployment rate for every group of Americans in modern history. And yet and especially the most infamous gaffe, arguably, is when Biden was on uh, that show, The Breakfast Club with Charlemagne the God. You know, he famously said, you know, if you got a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. And of course, there was a lot of backlash over that, both within the black community and broader, you know, for Republicans and whatnot. And yet at the end of it all, you know, the race riots and everything all said and done. I think he got, what, 87 percent of the black vote? You know, not Obama numbers, but still ridiculously high for a guy who basically you would think, taking a look at a comment like that, he basically did say, oh, yeah, I think you're uh, black people are stupid if they don't vote for me. That's basically what he said. And yet he still got almost 90 percent of them to vote for him. Well, it's because he he's realistic about the racial situation in America. He doesn't try to gloss over it. He recognizes it for what it is. And like with Jim Clyburn, he comes to him. He wants Jim Clyburn's endorsement. Jim Clyburn's like, OK, well, you want my endorsement? I want to see a black woman on the Supreme Court. And Biden said, OK, sure. I mean, that's politics. It's it's horse trading, mm-hmm. you know, and this is one thing that, that that you're dealing with. You know, most black people, they don't care as much about the black unemployment rate as they care about representation. Most of them would prefer to see a black woman on the Supreme Court rather than see their, their um, ethnicity's unemployment rate drop by another two or three percentage points. That, that's not as important to them as seeing seeing one of their own in the highest court in the land, especially someone who agrees with them as opposed to Clarence Thomas. So that, is, that's the thing on the view the other day, like they were discussing the Supreme Court vacancy and one of the women, one of the, the, the white, it wasn't Whoopi Goldberg. It was one of the white women who said like, you know, we already have a, uh, a, we have one black justice on the Supreme Court, you know, only one out of, you know, all the other justices are white. And Whoopi Goldberg then chimed in and said, and he doesn't really represent the black community, you know, and of course, that, <laughs> so, yeah. of, of but, course, like Whoopi, like Whoopi Goldberg, one, or, probably one of the wealthiest African-Americans in the country has any idea, you know, what, you know, really what. The broader black community is thinking about, but I digress. Well, but, no, I think she actually is more in tune. With, she's far more in tune with what the broader black community is than Clarence Thomas is, because if, if you, like again, you go back to the voting patterns. Uh, most black people would agree more with Whoopi Goldberg than they would with Clarence Thomas. So obviously, the ten to fifteen percent of blacks who would prefer to just assimilate, like the Frederick Douglass types, like Frederick Douglass was hoping that one day the only difference between black Americans and white Americans would be their skin color. Like in Brazil, in Brazil, there is no black ethnicity. In Brazil, you're just Brazilian. You got That's brown, right. black, tan mm-hmm. Brazilians of people of different amounts of African ancestry, and everyone speaks the same dialect. There, there is no black dialect. There is no black culture. Everything is just all mishmashed together. They've influenced each other's culture, and it's just all wrapped up into a new Brazilian, Brazilian culture. Yep. That was kind of what Frederick Douglass wanted, but it was unrealistic because at that time, the black ethnicity was already fully formed. Like it wasn't like it was in the progress. It had already been because, fully because formed. Because it was it arguably – it was kept separate from – Every other aspect of American culture because slaves were very much kept in their own little world to form their own cultures and their own music and whatnot. Exactly. Yeah. So that, that was simply – and now you do have, again, 10 to 15 percent that would like to assimilate. They agree with Frederick Douglass. They see Clarence Thomas as a hero. OK, great. Good for them. I'm 
you know, I'm, I'm very happy for him. I wish more black people would join their camp. That's just not realistic. And Joe Biden recognizes that. And one last point on this, on DeBerry's article, uh, he points out that, you know, George, George H.W. Bush did the same thing. No one in their right mind believes that George H.W. Bush p- picked Clarence Thomas by accident. He was replacing Thurgood Marshall for crying out loud. Obviously, we're, we're not we're not dumb. We don't have to. And the, the argument they'll make, and this is something that Jonathan Turley, he's a, a law professor, at, uh, he's a conservative law professor at George Washington University. He makes it's kind of ridiculous. Listen to this argument. He he tries to argue that Reagan didn't specifically put uh, Sandra Day O'Connor on the court because he was being sexist against men or because he specifically wanted a woman. He makes the argument. We're going to link to this in the description that he that Reagan wanted a woman, but he was open to anybody. And he makes the argument that George H.W. Bush, uh, he didn't necessarily pick Clarence Thomas because he was black. He picked he just basically picked him by accident because he was the best candidate. Nobody believes that. And it's just like with Trump. And the argument he makes even with Trump, it's it's the most absurd thing imaginable. With, uh, with Amy Coney Barrett? Yeah, you know, with Amy Coney Barrett. Replacing he, RBG, of course. Even though Trump specifically said he was going to put a woman on the court, the argument he makes that Jonathan Turley tries to make is that because Trump had this list of the Federal Society candidates that that he wasn't exclusively limiting himself to women. But again, it's if you're looking for an apartment in a new city and you've got three neighborhoods and you like one neighborhood more than the others and you want an apartment in that neighborhood, even if you looked at 20 apartments in the other two neighborhoods, you're going to pick the apartments in that one neighborhood and you're going to pick the best option. And it's not that it doesn't mean that that apartment you picked isn't good or as good as the other options. Um, it's not that it's again, it's not like Sandra Day O'Connor was. Uh, you know, unqualified. It, it means that she was the most qualified woman on the list. It doesn't mean that Amy Coney Barrett was unqualified. It means she was the most qualified woman on the list. Again, any of these black women that Biden is considering, they've all got Ivy League degrees. They've all been on, you know, they've all been judges. They're all well qualified to sit on the court. Obviously, ideologically, we would prefer that they stay as far away from the court as possible. They don't believe in original, you know, uh, strict construction and all that stuff because obviously they're going to let their ethnicity influence their views on the Constitution. But as far as qualifications, resume, they're completely qualified. They're as qualified as anybody. So, again, like the the outrage by Republicans over this issue to me is is very very silly, very very hypocritical. Trump did it. George H. W. Bush did it. Ronald Reagan did it. It's just something that you do. You try to balance it with Protestants, Catholics, Jews, atheists, you know, whoever you can to try to make sure that the court represents the makeup of the population. So it's also something that we just, we all saw this coming a mile away. Like the moment, again, I even forgetting about Biden's campaign pledge, the moment I saw the news, you just, you knew that it was coming. So to act surprised that that is the, the path he's going. I also just want to say on a side note with Clarence Thomas, because we got to acknowledge Clarence Thomas is the best justice on the Supreme Court. Oh yeah, hands down. He's, he is pretty much the, some people have called the, he's the shadow chief justice because they have a clear 6-3 minority or 6-3 majority and they don't need Roberts anymore. Like the upcoming Roe versus Wade ruling, they could, they could overturn it without Roberts. So people would argue he's really the chief justice or at least the ideological leader of the Supreme Court at this point. And his nomination, you could argue, you know, him being chosen as an African-American worked because obviously, yeah, succeeding third world marshal. But it also gave him a much stronger chance of being confirmed because what people forget is that when he was confirmed, you know, Bush senior was president. The Democrats had a majority of 57 seats in the Senate. Republicans said 43. So in today's environment, obviously, it doesn't care if he, you know, it's a black transgender woman, genderqueer nominated by a Republican, Democrats had that majority, they would have shot him down because shot him, her, they, them down because it's so partisan nowadays. But that identity politics playing into it also combined with Thomas's genuinely great speech. You know, he famously, when the, the allegations came out against him, you know, it was kind of the original Kavanaugh, the allegations came out against him. 
he held nothing back and described the allegations of fake, obviously, as this is a high tech lynching against uppity blacks, you know, who will not who will not conform to a certain system in this case, you know, to the Democrats agenda. And again, Joe Biden was at the time chairman of the the Judiciary Committee. So he was front and center of all that. And that ultimately a lot of these things all came together to show the, the a lot of these things ultimately came together so that he was confirmed with 41 Republican votes and 11 Democrat votes for a narrow margin of 52 to 48. Uh, again, if if Bush had nominated just some white guy, yeah, he probably easily would have been rejected by the Senate at that point. Well, one, just in closing, one thing that's really uh, frustrating, infuriating about Republicans, this is from The Federalist, is an article by Joy Pullman. She writes that, um, that Biden's pledge to nominate a black woman for SCOTUS is racist and sexist. And the argument she basically uses isn't that it's racist against white people, which it is. It's not sexist against males, which it is. She's basically arguing it's racist against black people and it's sexist against women because apparently whoever is picked will always have an asterisk by their name because they were picked because of their identity rather than their qualifications. And again, it's just all of these people are going to be qualified for the court. Like you've got yeah, – of any of, there's probably 100 people out there that are sitting on courts that are qualified to sit on the Supreme Court. But it's just this idea that this this colorblind push, this genderblind push that the Republican Party has adopted wholesale since really the 90s, it just doesn't make any sense, and it's not realistic. And that's why they continue to lag behind on race. That's why the Democrats continue to pound them on the issue of race because they don't understand it, and they refuse to understand it. They refuse to, to take it head on and just accept it for what it is rather than try to live in this fantasy America, this fantasy colorblind America that never existed. And uh, but yeah, so that's that, that. I wish Republicans, if conservatives would pay more attention to what these potential Supreme Court justices have said, what the you know the opinions they've written, their ideology, they could probably pull Joe Manchin over, maybe yep. even Kristen Cinema, maybe even Cinema. That's right. To and, get them to oppose their appointment, and eventually Biden would probably have to just scrap the whole idea of picking a black woman, pick somebody else. But instead, they're they're spinning their wheels, arguing that Biden is being uh, basically being racist um, based on the law of low expectations and that type of thing toward black people. Which that argument just doesn't that doesn't win black people over. <laughs> they they just basically laugh at that. That's just hilarious to them that Republicans think that this is somehow racist against blacks because it's going to somehow make this. I guess it's going to put an asterisk by this woman's name forever, and she's always going to feel less than because she was picked because of her gender and race, which. That hasn't. I don't think. I don't think Amy Coney Barrett loses any sleep over the fact that she was picked because she was the no. most qualified woman. Exactly. And again, I, I. It's going to be interesting to watch to see the internal dynamics dynamics of the Senate to see if there is some you know backroom deals being negotiated that we may be able to pull the mansion over because Manchin already screwed over Build Back Better and he and Cinema together have screwed over the voting rights bill. So I wouldn't put it past one of them to possibly make our day even more. Wouldn't that not be the funniest thing ever to see one of them screw over Biden's latest agenda item? And can you imagine he'd probably he'd probably have a heart attack at that point to think one more thing these people have ruined for him. But we'll see. We'll see. Uh, again, I'm not going to hold my breath. And again, the great thing about this is Breyer is a liberal justice, so this doesn't change the makeup of the court at all. We're still at least another 10 years, I think, you know, give or take with Thomas's age. We have the majority for a good while longer. Uh, Alito as well. So nothing horrible will come out of this that will, like, change the course of the, the future of the country. All the major nominations were already filled under Trump, thankfully. But it is interesting, nevertheless, to see, again, Biden doubling down, doing what little he can to distract from all his other failures and to try to consolidate what little support he has left. 
Unfortunately, that is all the time we have left for this episode, this special episode. Again, episode number 50 of The Right Take. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. As always, be sure to follow all of our latest content on our website, righttakepodcast.com. The full list of podcast platforms and social media sites, all tech platforms where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. And if you are feeling ever so generous, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.